Well, if you have a Bible there in front of you, if you want to turn to the Gospel of Mark, we're continuing our series in the Gospel according to Mark, and we're starting this morning in chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the first six verses of Mark chapter 3, so I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word today. As we read Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, give ear to the reading of God's holy word this morning. It says, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we know that uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from you, the mouth of our God. So we thank you for giving us your scriptures that we might not have to grope around as in the dark to figure out who you are, how we might be made right with you through faith in Christ, how we might live in a way that's pleasing in your sight. You've revealed all these things to us and more in your scriptures, and we thank you for them. We ask even now as we come to your word that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear Great things from it, even today, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were with us, if you've been with us throughout our study in in the Gospel of Mark, if you were here a couple Sundays ago, as we looked at the end of chapter uh, 2 of Mark's Gospel, um, you might have the feeling in mind that uh, here we go again. You know, the the end of chapter 2, there was an, an occasion for controversy over the Sabbath over the fourth commandment in the earthly life and ministry of Christ. And here we go again. There's another one here, the opening verses of chapter 3. That previous passage, if you were here, you might remember that the issue was the disciples, you know, they're they're walking along, they're traveling, uh, and they went by a grain field and they were hungry. And what did they do? They did what comes naturally in that environment. You grab, you know, whatever it was, corn, wheat, whatever it might be, you'd, Grab it and kind of nibble on it as you go, something to keep you going. That was perfectly allowable according to the Old Testament. It wasn't stealing to take enough to eat. You couldn't take a to-go bag. You know, you couldn't uh, take a sickle to someone's field uh, to have more than that, but you were perfectly able to eat uh, what was needed. That was how God provided for, for travelers. But the problem was what? It was the day of the week. It was the, it was, it was the Sabbath. And so the, the Pharisees at the time who were traveling apparently along with Jesus and keeping a close eye on him. Apparently they thought, you know, the old saying, keep your, your friends close and your enemies closer, or, you know, know your enemy. They were spying on him the whole time, and they, they had a problem with it. And, and he corrected their misgivings about that commandment by referring to the example of David eating the showbread. And we looked at that last time. Well, here it's another Sabbath controversy, and it's not about eating, it's not about traveling and and taking a piece of, of, uh, of corn or something from the field. Um, this time, it's about healing someone. And it's not on, out in the field as they're traveling. It's inside the, the synagogue. Now, the, the Pharisees, you know, they, they thought grabbing that little bit of grain and eating it 
that to them that was a, a sort of a labor on the Sabbath. They pictured that as harvesting and threshing on a miniature scale. But it didn't matter if it was a miniature scale to them. It was still, in their legalistic minds, it was work. It was labor, and they, they thought it was a breaking of the commandment. Jesus, who was the Lord of the Sabbath, told them otherwise, right? Well, here uh, we're going to see that they're continuing in the same kind of, of mindset, that they're always, they're always majoring in the minors, so to speak. That's what a legalist, one of the many things that a legalist tends to do is to major in the minors. But thinking about that phrase that I, I tend to use, it's kind of too kind of a way to put it, isn't it? Just to talk about majoring in the minors in this particular case, it, it kind of makes it sound as if they were actually trying to obey something that Scripture commanded. And we're going to see that that's not really the case at all. They weren't, they weren't really seeking to obey the commandments of God regarding the Sabbath. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't obeying minor aspects of God's law. Really, they weren't obeying it at all. The issue here in our text isn't uh, really one of obeying God's law at all, because that's not what they were really standing up for. They, they pretended or thought they were standing up for the law of God, but they really weren't. What was the real issue here? Or what was one of the main issues here? It was the Pharisees, to them, Jesus wasn't following their tradition. Jesus wasn't following their version or their view of the law. It was their rules. It was their traditions placed over the law, superimposed on top of God's law, that Jesus wasn't conforming to. And they had a problem with that. And what the Pharisees had done, and what we, we often do today in the church as well, maybe not on the same subject, but we, we begin and they begin to, to view their own teaching and their own practice concerning the law of God. They confuse that with the law itself. Here's what I do concerning this, this commandment, and so that's the commandment. So if you don't measure up to what I do, or if I don't measure up to what you do, we, we think each other has broken the law. That's what they accused or, or tended to accuse Christ of doing. So let's, let's be clear about one thing. We're going to look at a lot about legalism this morning. Uh, to be clear, obeying the law of God both outwardly and from the heart is not legalism. I think that's something that we tend to mistake in our day and age. Maybe that's been the way... That, that way all through the history of the church. But obeying God's commandments is not the same thing as legalism, at least if you're obeying them outwardly and from the, from the heart. In fact, obeying the law of God is the obligation of every creature under heaven. That has not changed with the advent of, of Christ. And obeying the law of God is even more, it's even especially so, an obligation for believers in Christ. It's not less of an obligation when you're in Christ. You have more reason to obey than an unbeliever does. Jesus himself says in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? If you call him Lord, he's the Lord. Matthew 5.17, towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the people that he has not come to what? Abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. He has not come to do away with the law. Though our Westminster Confession of Faith says of the law of God, it says, neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve but much strengthen this obligation. We don't think like that in our day. 
The gospel doesn't do away with the obligation to obedience. It actually strengthens it. I would go as far as to say as outside of Christ, we have no ability whatsoever to obey God's law. Every attempt outside of Christ at obeying God's law, in, in, in a real sense, breaks it. Because we, we, we're legalists at heart, aren't we? We think of God's law as, as a merit badge. I can check that box, and that's, that makes me right with God. When, in fact, we've all broken God's commandments in, in Adam. But if you're a believer in Christ, you have more reason, not less, to love God and obey his commandments. More reason, not less. Obeying God's commandments, again, is not legalism. Legalism is trying to make yourself right with God by what you do. Legalism is trying to make yourself right with God by works or trying to obey his commandments in order to approach a holy God. That's, that's legalism. That is the filthy rags, to use Isaiah's phrase, of self-righteousness. That's legalism. We're going to look at, a, at three things this morning. Uh, we're going to look, our three points will be first, the faith, I put that in quotation marks, the faith of the Pharisees. Secondly, the question of the Sabbath. And third, might sound strange as the first point, the anger of Jesus. So the faith of the Pharisees, so-called, the question of the Sabbath and the anger of Jesus. So we're going to look first at the faith of the Pharisees. Now, what I don't mean by that, obviously I think you get by the quotation marks there, I don't mean true spirit-wrought saving faith that receives and rests upon Christ alone for salvation. They certainly did not have that. Some eventually came to have that. Paul himself came to be a believer in Christ. So there's hope for legalists. There's hope for those people. God saves all kinds of, of people. But these Pharisees had a kind of faith, didn't they? They, had a, they had, Oddly enough, they had a kind of a faith in Jesus. Not a saving faith, of course, but they did have some kind of a faith in Christ. Verses 1 to 2, Mark, what does he say there? He says, Again he, that's Christ, again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So they were watching Jesus very closely. They, didn't just, they weren't just sitting there, you know, I don't know, who knows what it looked like there, but they weren't sitting there drinking their coffee or whatever it was and, oh, there's Jesus, hey, Jesus, he's here, he's got the, you can check the attendance box, he gets a gold star on the refrigerator. Um, no, what they were doing was they were keeping a close eye on him. They were on the lookout for him. They were looking for anything they could do to trip him up. Now, looking at Jesus closely is a good idea if one's intent is to believe on him and emulate his conduct and his example. Um, that's what the Pharisees should have been doing, isn't it? I mean, the Son of God himself walked in the same synagogue as them. The Messiah, the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah walked in um, they should have been keeping an eye on him to believe in him. They should have, their attitude should have been, hey, he might heal this man. And we get to be here to see it and to be a part of it. But what, is, what does it say in verse 2? They were looking at him closely. Why? So they might accuse him. They were looking for something to accuse the Son of God of doing wrong. This was unbelief. This was hate. They hated Jesus Christ. And they were looking for an opportunity or an excuse to accuse him of wrongdoing and to speak evil of him about the Sabbath commandment. Now this, this calls to mind, in, in my eyes, uh, Daniel, Daniel chapter, chapter 6. Daniel 6, you might remember the story 
uh, the lion's den. I know that's every kid's favorite story or one of them. Um, Daniel 6, verses 4 to 5, it says, Then the high officials and satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. You know, politically, they're trying to get him in trouble with the new king. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. May may that be said to be true of, of, of you and I more and more. He was faultless, not perfect, not sinless. But there was no legitimate ground for complaint. He was a godly man who feared the Lord and walked like it. Verse 5 says this, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What are they saying? Now, it's a little bit different than what the Pharisees are doing to Christ here. But they're saying, if we're going to trip him up, if we're going to get him in trouble, we've got to aim for the one thing we know he's going to do. He's going to worship the one true and living God. He's going to worship the God of Israel. And it involved prayer. I won't read the rest of the story, but you know, you know, I think you, most of you probably know the story by now. Now, he could have closed the windows. He could have prayed in his proverbial prayer closet, but he didn't. And he knew they'd be watching. And he knew there'd be consequences, and he prayed anyway. Well, Jesus does a similar thing here. He knows they're watching. He knows why they're watching. He knows what they're looking for. And he doesn't, as we're going to see, he doesn't duck away from any of it. And may that, may that thing that was said of Daniel there be something that can be said of you and I, that if someone's going to find fault, let it be something about the law of our God, that we're, we're seeking in faith to obey and love our Lord and do what he commands. Well, why, why do I speak of the faith, so-called, of the Pharisees here? Look again at verse 2. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Not could, would. What does that tell you? It's kind of an amazing verse if you think about it. They knew that Jesus could heal that man. They had no doubt. They believed Jesus Christ had the power to heal that man. That's remarkable. They had such a faith, so-called, that he could do that, that they were watching for it. They were afraid they would miss it, that Jesus would heal the man, and they wouldn't see it in order to accuse him of doing it. And not only that, not just the power of Christ, they were pretty sure of the character of Christ, weren't they? There was very little doubt, if any, that that he was going to do it. They were watching because they knew his tendencies. They knew that when he saw someone who was suffering, he tended to do something about it. Maybe they were just hoping he wouldn't put it off till Monday or till, till Sunday. But they, they knew his power, they were convinced of his character, uh, and they, were, they, they counted upon it to do something, to give them something to accuse him of. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a very frightening picture of, of being dead in sin to me. That's a very frightening picture of what hardness of heart looks like. You know, it's no wonder that Jesus, in Matthew 16, 6, told his people, his disciples, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Their influence, it catches easily. It's worse than the common cold. Did Did you know that it's possible, from our text and elsewhere, it's possible to be very religious. It's possible to be very moral. 
it's possible to take a great interest in Scripture and even the law of God and yet hate and reject Jesus Christ. Hold him at arm's length at best. It happens all the time. One of the, the, one of the, the most common things that keeps people from Christ isn't immorality, although that's true as well. Sometimes morality and religion keep people from Christ. Now, I don't mean the biblical religion. I mean being religious, going, going to church, even a, a Bible-believing church. You can go to the, right, the best church in town. No comment. Uh, and and, and be, be miles from Christ. You can, go to the, you can go to a Bible-believing church, have an interest in, in, the, in the Bible, and be very moral, very upstanding, respectable, and religious, and yet reject Christ. They're living proof of it. He was in their midst. They, they went to the same church as Jesus. And yet they, they plotted his destruction in verse 6. You can be very religious and very moral and yet be outside of Christ and still be a child of wrath. Now, what, what brought that to the surface with the Pharisees here in our text? What did Jesus do that so stirred up their anger? One of the things he did was he threatened and exposed their self-righteousness. Nothing exposes a self-righteous person more than the righteous one, Jesus Christ. The presence of Christ, the teaching of Christ. He breaks the curve. He pulls the tattered rug of self-righteousness right out from under our feet. We think we're doing okay, and then Jesus walks in. People that want to rely on their own righteousness don't tend to enjoy that kind of a presence. He tells us that we can't rest in our own righteousness for a right standing before a holy God. And so a self-righteous person often hates to hear that. And even though he offers his own perfect righteousness in its place, the self-righteous person, the heart of heart, will have nothing to do with that. We want to come to God on our own terms or no terms at all. And so very often we reject the gospel. Tell a legalist that he can work his way to heaven. And you'll have a line around the block with people waiting to sign up. You want to build a big church? There's your message. Not, not immorality. Morality. Be, be good. You can earn your way to heaven. You'll have people lined up, even in our day, I think, around the block. Tell a legalist that the only righteousness that God will accept is that of Christ alone, imputed to them by faith and grace, and that there's nothing that he can do to save himself, and he'll have nothing to do with it. But that's, that's the gospel. Don't settle for the faith of the Pharisees. Don't settle for a knowledge about Jesus that falls short of a knowledge of Jesus. Mere knowledge about Jesus does not save. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. You know, good job. Even the demons believe and do what? Tremble or shudder. Do demons know theology? You bet they do. They know all the facts. They know them in a lot of ways better than we do. And yet, their belief is not saving belief. Their, their faith is not, of course, saving faith. They at least have the good sense to shudder. Many people in our day don't even have... Well that, well, that leads us to our second point, maybe the main point, the question of the Sabbath. In verses 3 to 4, Mark writes, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here, and he said to them, Is it lawful or permissible on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. 
Now, back in verse 2, we saw that they were watching Jesus you know, very intently. They were keeping a close eye on him. They were trying to find something to accuse him of doing wrong on the Sabbath. Well, here in these verses, we, Jesus kind of makes it very clear that he's not trying to hide from anything. You know, Jesus could have done a number of things. He could have told, pulled that man aside and said, Hey, you know, I don't want to cause a ruckus. Um, you know who I am. I'll heal you. you know, come back tomorrow. Meet me at the fountain over here. You know, meet me somewhere in town the next day when nobody can, say, can raise a fuss over it, and I'll heal you. That. He doesn't do that. He could have pulled him off into a corner and said, you know, keep this quiet between you and me, you know, presto changeo, and healed him. He didn't do that, did he? And he knew people were watching him to accuse him, and yet what does he do? He tells the man, you, the one everybody's watching me to watch, come here. Don't, not off in a corner. Really, the, the phrase that he says there in, in the Greek, it has the idea of coming up into the middle or into the center. He's basically saying, you know, maybe if you're in the military, you might recall this phrase, you know, front and center. Come up here in front of everyone. Everyone, look, you want to look? Look. You want to see something? Watch this. He gets them in front of everyone. So if, if you want to see something, let's see something. You want to watch me, what I'm going to do with this man? Well, let's see what I'm going to do with this man. It's a challenge. He's, he's showing the Pharisees he's not afraid and he's not going to not heal this man and show compassion upon him because it might injure their sensibilities and give them something with which to work at accusing them. <clears throat> but he doesn't just call him up front and center, does he? He asks a question. And notice, first he speaks to the man, you, you know, front and center. Then he talks to them. Well, he's got everybody's attention. Now the spotlight's on whom? It's on them. That's not, not, not the bargain that they were hoping for. And he asks a question of them. And his question shows us something that's not obvious in the text. But once again, he shows them and us that he knew their thoughts. They, were, they weren't trumpeting the fact that they were watching him or why they were watching him. But he knew why they were watching him. He makes it plain to them, I know exactly what you're thinking. Well, let's get it out in the open. And he asks them, that question, you would think any reasonable person that had that happen repeatedly might start thinking twice about how they thought of this man, Jesus Christ. There's something, something different about this guy. He, he, he knows what I'm thinking. He answers the question that I didn't ask out loud. And he seems to have a habit of doing just that. He knew their thoughts. He had the power to heal. His words couldn't be withstood, and yet they still rejected him. They should have known better. And Jesus' question gets right to the question at hand, doesn't it? He's not ducking the issue at all. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? It, it's an obvious question with an obvious answer, isn't it? He didn't, he didn't stump them. He didn't give them an answer, you know, if God, is God so powerful that he can make a rock so big? It's nothing like that. The answer would be the answer that the youngest child in that synagogue would have been able to raise his hand and say, well, of course, it's, it's lawful or permissible to do good. And it's never right to kill, to murder, or to do evil. It's not like the rest of the week you can do evil and you can kill, but no, don't do that on the Sabbath. It's an easy, it's an easy answer to an easy question. There's nothing wrong with doing good on the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. And there's nothing wrong with saving life 
on the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. Now, how, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine that these people could have ever thought or imagined that of all the days of the week, of all the seven days of the week, the Lord's command to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, Exodus 20, verse 8, would have somehow required refraining from doing good to their neighbor. That, that's for the other days, but on my special day, you don't help people. You don't, certainly don't heal people. Imagine, that's their thinking. They're thinking somehow God would have, would have required them to not help their neighbor. Our shorter catechism, if you've read through that at all, it contains at least six questions dealing with the fourth commandment. It goes through all the commandments, all ten, and gives all kinds of instruction regarding it. But, it, but for this commandment, six different questions... It shouldn't really be a surprise as we, we don't have just nine commandments, do we? We still have ten. And all ten still have application to our lives. But, but this particular commandment, the fourth commandment, has so often met with neglect, abuse, and confusion that the writers of the catechism felt it necessary to treat it at length for the Lord's people. And this was true in Jesus' day, that it was neglected, it was abused, it was confused. It was true in the 17th century when the Westminster Standards were formulated, and I think it still holds true in our own day in many ways. Well, here's question 60. It addresses the idea of doing good on the Sabbath. It says, how is the Sabbath to be sanctified? The Sabbath answer, the Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful permitted on other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship. Here it is. Except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. If someone needs your help on a Sunday, uh, we don't get to, you know, if it's a real need, we don't get to say, well, you know, I'd help your brother, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to be at home praying. Be at home praying, but help your brother. It's not an excuse. It's not a loophole to get you out of things. If someone needs food, you know I'd feed you, but it's Sunday, God's day. You know, I've got to come to church, and we have two services, and then we have, you know, tomorrow. Hang in there till tomorrow, and then I'll help you. Is that really what the commandment, you know, how are we to sanctify or set apart the Sabbath or the Lord's day from other days? In what way are we as believers to, to treat a Sunday differently or as special? What does the question say? First, by a holy resting. Not inactivity, not laziness, holy resting. We're, we are to rest from our normal, not sinful, our normal work and recreations. You shouldn't have to tell anyone about it. If it's a sinful recreation, there's no good day for it. If it's a sinful employment, there are sinful employments. There are, there are jobs you should not have. Uh, I won't go into that, but uh, those are wrong any day of the week because they're sinful. Well, it's saying even things that are not sinful, your jobs, I don't think anybody's job here is probably sinful. Uh, hopefully none of your recreations are sinful, but it says on that day, we take that day off from those, even those good things. Why? What's the, we saw this last time. What's the purpose of the Lord's Day? So we can spend the day with God. That's it. That's the main thing. Put a bow on that exclamation point. It's not legalism. It's spending time with God and with God's people. That's the point. He gives us this one day in seven that we can spend the day, a holy and blessed day, 
the day that was made for man, not the other way around, to be, to be for our blessing and benefit, as we saw last time, in the worship of God with the people of God, that's what, we're, that's what you're doing this morning. That, that's why we're here uh, Sunday morning like, like today. You know, very often, um, it's hard to think of, of analogies and things, but I think sometimes we, our, our idea or practice of, of, of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, it's kind of like uh, you know, a young man asks a girl out on a date. Uh, you know, he's been building up to it all week and they, they, making preparations for it. And they go out to dinner and he spends the whole time staring at his cell phone, at his smartphone. It, you know, checking face, whatever, whatever, whatever the kids do these days, you know, looking at his phone and spends three hours. You know, he doesn't rush. He's not looking at his watch the whole time, but he's just looking at himself, his uh, smartphone, messing around on whatever apps he's using. They eat dinner. He might make some little, little casual conversation. And then after two or three hours, they, they go their separate ways. He drops her off, whatever. What is she going to think of that? Probably not, probably not going to get a second date out of, out of her. Right uh, now, he might go to his friends and say, "Ah, oh, I took her out to a nice restaurant. I, I didn't rush. I spent three hours. I was there with her for three hours. What else does she want? I paid. The, I paid the tab. I, I picked up the check. What kind of a date was that? Well, he had other things on his mind. He had other things that were more important to him that shouldn't have been more important to him than than this young lady in front of him. What, not to make God the young lady, but that's kind of how we sometimes approach the Sabbath." Get this over with to get on to what I really want to do. And really, God's saying, you've got time with me. That's, that's, it's not legalism. It's, it's relationship with God. That's what it's meant to be for. But it's not, again, it's not meant as a loophole to get us out of things that we don't really want to do, like helping, helping other, other people. You know, Jesus tells us here in our text, and the writers of the Shorter Catechism are quick to point out, that a holy resting does not excuse us from showing love to our neighbor's especially those in need. What is that? That's what they call works of necessity and mercy. Some things you have to do no matter what the day is. Works of mercy and necessity are always permissible if they truly are works of mercy and necessity. There, there are some things that must be done. Some practical questions. Our families, your families need to eat. If you have children, they need attention. Law enforcement officers can't just take Sundays off. Criminals don't take Sundays off. Paramedics, doctors, ER nurses at the hospital, they don't close the hospital on Sundays. Why? Because people don't schedule their heart attacks. People don't schedule their accidents. Oh, you know, you, you picked a bad day. Sorry, not, 911, hello. Oh, you know, hi, thank you for calling 911. Please call us back between the hours of 9 and 5 on Monday morning, and, and we'll, we'll take care of you. The military... Military doesn't, I can speak from experience, you don't get Sundays off. Why is that? Well, the threats to our nation's security don't take Sundays off. There are works of necessity. Someone has to keep the lights on, the, the water running in our homes. Those things are lawful uh, employments that are okay to be done on a Sunday. Some things are necessary. But all of that is not to be treated as a loophole of sorts for doing whatever we feel like doing on the Lord's Day. We don't redefine works of necessity as being anything and everything that we didn't happen to get to the rest of the week. I didn't get all my stuff done. I didn't get my honeydew list done, so uh, I'm going to get it done on, on Sunday. That, that would be to make a mockery of the special day that God has given us, that, that he set aside as a blessing to us to spend time 
with him. Well, works of mercy are always to be encouraged, especially on the Lord's Day, but any day. Visiting the sick, visiting shut-ins, taking a meal to someone, stopping to help someone, taking time to do good to someone. That is not an interruption or a violation of the Lord's Day. That, that is part of the intent of the Lord's Day. There, there might be a sense in which the rest of the week you don't have time to do the good that you might be able to do on a Sunday for someone that's in need. So God gives us this day as part of the reason for that. How did the Pharisees answer the question? How did they answer? It's pretty telling. They didn't. Verse 5 says they were silent. Probably the one time that could be said of the Pharisees in Scripture. They were silent. They could not answer the question without the... You know, everybody knew what the answer was, but they couldn't give it because it exposed their own sin and their hypocrisy. How could their lack of compassion for that man with the withered hand possibly be considered pleasing to God or as obedience to the fourth commandment? And how could their hatred of Jesus Christ himself be compatible with keeping the Sabbath day holy? They knew they were on the hook. They, they, they knew they had nothing. They had nothing they could say in response. And that brings us to the third and final point. It might sound like a strange point to be a main point of a sermon, but the anger of Jesus. In verses 5 to 6, Mark says, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at, the hardness of, at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. Uh, he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That, that first phrase, I don't know... Maybe if you're, if you're very familiar with it already, maybe it didn't make you kind of take notice and sit up in your seat. But you know, you're reading about Jesus, and all of a sudden, Jesus is angry. It's kind of jarring. It's like, you know, what happened to gentle Jesus, meek and mild? All of a sudden, he's looking at these men, and he's angry. What do you do with that? How, how are we to understand that? Well, uh, the anger of Christ is the true example the best example of righteous anger, righteous indignation. Not all Christians, not all of our anger is righteous. We often get angry when we shouldn't. But we also often don't get angry when we should. There are things that call for righteous anger and indignation in this case. Think about this way. The sinless Son of God, it would have been a sin in some sense for Him not to be angry at this situation. His anger was a righteous anger. Nothing was out of place or sinful in his anger, not even in the fact that he directed his anger towards these men, towards these Pharisees. Sometimes it's sinful not to be angry, although it takes wisdom and discernment to know when and how that should be the case. Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12 speaks of the anger of the Son of God here, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be what? Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now that's addressed to the kings, the mighty people of the earth, but I think it applies to everyone. It applies to kings, it applies to the rest of us as well. That's, in a sense, that's a choice everyone's faced with. Kiss the Son and take refuge in Him or face His wrath for your sins. Serving Him, serving the Son is the way of, as the psalm says, rejoicing. It's the way of blessing. 
Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Rejecting him and continuing in rebellion against his lordship and majesty is the way to death. and It's the way to the just wrath of God. What was it that angered Jesus about these men? What does the text say? Their legalism? Maybe their legalism, their twisting of the law of God? The lack of compassion for the suffering of that man with the, with the withered hand? Their hatred of Christ? Maybe all the above? Um, Mark adds, he says, Jesus was grieved at what? He looked at them with anger and grieved because of the hardness of their heart. Their hearts were so hard that they didn't see that Jesus' question was not even hypothetical. It wasn't a hypothetical question. Sometimes we think that's what he's doing. It's not what he's doing at all here. Look again at the question he asks them. Is it, is it, is it permissible or lawful on the Sabbath to do, to, to do good or to do evil, to save life or, or to kill? Not only were they forbidding the doing of good to a needy person on the Sabbath who was suffering, they were also at that very moment guilty of doing harm and killing on the Sabbath, weren't they? He hit the nail squarely on the head. And all this while, they thought they were the ones upholding and defending the commandments. That's hardness of heart. That's some mind-numbing hardness of heart. They, they didn't think they were breaking anything. They thought they were the champions of God's law, but what were they doing? They were plotting the murder of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, on the Sabbath. Verse 6, it says, uh, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So they didn't just m plot murder on the Sabbath. They plotted the murder of the Messiah himself. And they plotted the murder of the Messiah himself with those who were loyalists of the Roman occupation of Israel. The Herodians, we don't know exactly who they were, but they were, let's just say they were fans of Herod. They were fans of the Roman occupation. They tried to do whatever they could to keep that going. Of all the groups that the Pharisees could have gotten into bed with, they picked that one. The ones who had Israel under their thumb. The last group they should have gotten together with, they got together with. That's how, that's how deeply their hatred of Christ was. Here again in our text, Mark foreshadows the cross, doesn't he? Even at the beginning of the gospel, he's telling us it was already on its way. The cross of Christ was already going to happen. We see the seeds of it already here. They didn't just dislike Jesus. They didn't just say, hey, I don't like this guy. I don't like the way he teaches. I don't like what he does. They were, in the third chapter, already plotting to kill him. The cross was never far out of view. It didn't take long for the seed of the serpent, back in Genesis 3.15 here, to plot the striking of the heel of the Messiah who was the seed of the woman. And yet that prophesied and promised thing ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3 that's how long ago that was promised and prophesied it was foreordained from before the foundation of the world well now we see it coming to pass in time the cross is where the sinless son of God died to save us from our sins that we might be forgiven and accepted as righteous in God's sight even the Sabbath commandment itself if you think about this was established at creation not at Exodus 20 God established it in the order of creation itself. Even that commandment was affected by the seismic shift that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as our Redeemer was raised from the dead for our justification on the first day of the week on Sunday, 
So now ever since then, the Christian Sabbath has been Sunday, the Lord's Day. That's how big of a thing the resurrection of Christ is. That it even transforms the day that we observe for the fourth commandment. Every time you and I meet for worship on the Lord's Day, we celebrate and commemorate, whether we realize it or not, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our salvation. What a blessing this day is for us in Christ. And what more reason do we have, even more than in the Old Testament, to sanctify this day as a holy blessing from God. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it, it, when we go through it from verse to verse, from passage to passage and chapter to chapter, that it, it faces us with issues that we might tend to shy away from, that we might tend to ignore or neglect. Um, and we also see that very often, even your, your holy law, which is good, your, your commandments are good, that we even twist those into a means of self-righteousness and legalism and trying to approach you by works. We ask that you would forgive us for both things, that you would forgive us for the ways that we have approached your law, even the Sabbath commandment, in a legalistic way, in a self-righteous way, and forgive us for the other side of the same coin where we have neglected it in many ways and esteemed other things as more important and as a greater blessing than spending time with you, our God and our Savior. We ask that you would forgive us for these things. Give us grace to see your day as we ought, that we'd see it as a blessing, as given to us for our benefit, and more importantly, help it to be a reminder of us from week to week of the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, in our place for our salvation. We thank you for that so much. We can't even begin to, 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 to thank you as we ought to, but we give you praise for it. And we do ask if anyone here yet does not, does not yet know you and is still relying on their own righteousness to stand before you, that you'd open their eyes and let them see Christ and flee to him by faith, come to him to have life in his name and forgiveness and all the blessings that are only, his, only ours in him by faith and by your grace. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.